No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. So wrote the 16th century poet John Donne. He did it to express the solidarity that exists in the human race. How, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we understand it or like it or not, We have been created before God in relationship with all of humanity. In our culture's hyper-individualized way of thinking about the world, we do not often stop to consider that solidarity. We don't often stop to contemplate what it means to be a creature made in the image of God together with every other person in this world. Now, it's true that each of us is, in his own way, unique, and each one of us has individual characteristics about ourselves that no one else precisely shares. It's also true that God does deal with each one of us individually. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In other words, God will not judge you on the basis of what your father has done, nor will he judge you on the basis of what your child does. But each one of us must stand and give an account before God on our own. However, that truth does not at all cancel out the truth that as creatures made in the image of God, all mankind shares a solidarity with each other. Paul made this point to the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17 when he told them that the God who made the world and everything in it made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And as a result, as he goes on to say there, we are all God's offspring. Thus, John Donne wrote, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. We all felt something of this last week, didn't we? We saw We heard those horrible scenes and reports of the senseless death of George Lloyd in Minneapolis. No matter your race, no matter your political affiliation, your occupation or your age, this type of senseless waste of life diminishes us all. And it also illustrates one of the most important lessons that the Bible teaches us on the solidarity of the human race. And the lesson is this, that sin and death came through the actions of the first man, Adam. And in Adam, every human being stands in solidarity. 
God created that first man and assigned him to be the representative of the whole human race. As such, what Adam did and what happened to Adam has consequences for all of us. Because of his disobedience, sin and death have infected the human race. The Apostle Paul explains this in the text that is before us this morning. As we continue to work our way through the book of Romans, we come today to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. Martin Lloyd-Jones has called this passage the very center of the epistle to the Romans. The New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner has called it one of the most difficult and controversial passages to interpret in all of Pauline literature. And the Lutheran theologian Anders Nygren says, this passage is where the point is the point where all the lines of Paul's thinking converge, both those of the preceding chapters and those of the chapters that follow. Without a doubt, This is one of the most important theological texts in all of Scripture. And because that is true, we're going to spend the next several weeks looking into it. What I want to do today is simply to introduce the passage, to give something of an overview of it. And I want to do that first by showing its connection to what Paul has just written and to what he will go on to elaborate in chapter 6. And then secondly, to look at the overall structure and point of Paul's argument in these verses. So our text is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll find this on page 942. I encourage you to get a copy of Scripture before you so that you can follow along as we read and consider together what the Spirit is saying to us through the Word on this occasion. So hear God's Word as I read this passage aloud. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is found in Adam, 
Life is found in Christ. That's the big point that Paul makes in this passage. And he does it by drawing a parallel and providing a contrast between the first man, Adam, and Jesus Christ. We see that this is his intention because he tells us that plainly at the end of verse 14. If you look at the words, he says that Adam is a type of the one who was to come, meaning that that Adam prefigured the one to come, Jesus. Adam was set up by God to teach us about something, teach us something about the one who was to come later, the Lord Jesus. Adam was given a role, an assignment that was later to be taken up by Jesus. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 refers to Jesus as the last Adam. The first Adam, created in the Garden of Eden, failed in what God gave him to do. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, came into the world and succeeded in what God gave him to do. And this is why we say that death is found in Adam, but life is found in Christ. Well, let's look at this passage by way of overview this morning by first taking note of the connection that these verses have to what Paul has written previously and to what he will write after this chapter. And we see the connection signaled for us in that little word, therefore. Therefore, we should always pay attention where this word appears in Scripture, particularly in Paul's writings. Because Paul writes in a very logical, reasoned way. He makes a case. He builds an argument in order to convince his readers of something. And so he says here, therefore. So what does this therefore refer to? Well, commentators debate this question. Is it a reference to everything that Paul has written up to this point? Especially from chapter 1 verse 18 where he begins the doctrine of sin all the way to the middle of this chapter that we've looked at in previous weeks? Or is it more particularly to verses 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 5? Or is he primarily concerned about the implications of justification that are spelled out in verses 1 through 11? Well, we should recognize that there's uh, points to be made for all of those arguments, but it is without question that at least Paul has in mind that which he has just written about the blessings of justification, the things that we possess as Christians Because of Jesus Christ. Paul's about to make a case to further buttress his argument that believers can be absolutely certain that we are accepted by God solely on the basis of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He introduces a truth that he will elaborate in chapter 6. And that truth is this. Christians are in union with Christ. Union with Christ. This doctrine is implicitly expressed in what he's just written in those first 11 verses. If you'll just let your eyes roll back over chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Notice all of the references to Christ as he's trying to encourage readers to be assured that they're no longer condemned before God, that they're accepted by God. Why? Why? Because they've done so well? 
because they have attained something? No, it's all because of Christ. Look at this in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, it is through Him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there can be no doubt that the Apostle Paul means for us to see our salvation comes solely through, completely in Jesus Christ. As Peter's, Peter put it in the occasion in Jerusalem when he was under investigation for preaching, he said to the Jewish leaders in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no reconciliation with God outside of Christ. There's no forgiveness of sin outside of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation from His wrath. There's no eternal life apart from Christ. The only hope that you or I or anyone has is to be in Christ. If you hope that God will accept you, if you hope God loves you, if you hope God is for you, the only way you can be sure is to be in Christ. If you want to be right with God, you must get in Christ. How do you get in Christ? You get in Christ by faith. By trusting Him. By bowing to Him as Lord. If you've never trusted Christ before, friend, God calls you here and now to turn from sin and to trust Him. That you might be united with Him and in Him be reconciled to your Creator. Paul hints at this theme of union with Christ in verse 10. Though when we looked at this verse in previous weeks, I didn't call attention to this specific point. But if you look at verse 10 again, you'll see how Paul writes there, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. That little phrase, by His life, could more literally be rendered in His life. The preposition that Paul uses there, most of the time, is simply translated in His life. What is Paul saying? I think he's hinting at what he's about to elaborate here. The salvation that we have, it is ours because of Christ. Because of our union with Christ. Now in chapter 6... The Apostle Paul is going to take us down deep in this teaching of union with Christ. Just look at chapter 6 for a few moments, and I'll just read the first few verses of the chapter. But if you want to understand more of what it means to be in Christ, to be identified with Jesus Christ, you couldn't do better than to start with Romans chapter 6 and spend time praying and meditating through it. Paul writes in verse 1 of that chapter, 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? (laughs) If you're in Christ, you have been brought into union with him in his death, in his crucifixion. Christian, we should think about this. We have been crucified with Christ. Paul goes on in verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall surely be united with Him in a resurrection like His. The most fundamentally important thing about a Christian is that he or she is in Christ. James Stewart called union with Christ the heart of Paul's religion. The great Westminster theologian John Murray says, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Brothers and sisters, if you come to grips with this teaching, that by faith you are in union with Christ, it will transform the way you think about yourself. It will transform the way that you relate to other people. To know that you are in union with Christ will make you understand that the most important thing about you is that you are indeed in Him. You're a Christian. Now, there are other characteristics that can inform your identity. So that when you describe yourself, when you think about yourself, you can call upon those characteristics. Your age, your occupation, your education, your ethnicity, your sex, your nationality. All of those can inform your identity, but they all pale into insignificance when you compare them to this. That fundamentally, you are in Christ. All that He accomplished is credited to you. All that He has experienced is your experience too. His life is your life. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. If we see this and we take God at His word and believe it, it will change the way that we live. This is why the Apostle Paul exhorts us to live the way that he does. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, in those opening verses of that chapter, he writes, If you then have been raised with Christ, why? Because you are in union with Christ. If this is true, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that amazing? We don't stand before God on our own. We stand before God in Christ. You're not left to try to figure out how to live on your own. You're in Christ. You don't relate to other people on your own. You're in Christ. To have a clear grasp of your union with Christ is to be assured 
that God is for you. How can you know this? Because you know it's on every page of the Bible almost that God is for His only begotten Son. He loves Him with an everlasting love. He's had eternal fellowship with the Son as the Father and the Spirit. This unbroken, triune love. And you are in the Son. You have union with Him. Just as the vine dresser carefully watches over his vine, so we who are united to that vine, who are branches on the vine, can be sure that our Heavenly Father is working in us. He's working to provide for us. He's working to guide us. Yes, He's working to prune us so that we might bear much fruit. Are you going through difficulties? Trials? Challenges? You're not going through them alone. You're going through them, Christian, in Christ. And your Heavenly Father loves you. He is with you because you are in His Son. And He is working for your eternal welfare. So take heart. Remember this. Believe this. And start evaluating your life in the light of this incredible truth. To recognize and remember your union with Christ is to be set free from living for the approval of people. Or living in the fear of the displeasure of people. Why? Because God has accepted you. God is for you. You're in His Son. What can people do to you? What do you have to fear if God is with you? This is what caused Paul to write in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. You see how he is thinking about his union with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Who gave himself for me. It was this union with Christ that enabled Paul to go on to write at the end of Galatians in verse 14 of chapter 6. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. You don't have to jump. When the world snaps its fingers. You don't have to cower. When the world cracks its whip. Because you're in Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. You've been crucified to this world. And this world has been crucified to you. Brothers and sisters, remember. Remember. Meditate on. Contemplate. Pray that God will help us all to grasp that we are united to Christ by faith. And let that truth begin to shape the way we think about ourselves, the way we relate to others, the way we live. Well, that's the connection of this text to what Paul's already written and what he's going to elaborate in chapter 6. Let's now look at the structure and point of his argument in these verses. We see the structure of it divided basically into three sections, although it needs to be acknowledged that it's not 
easy to outline this passage of Scripture because Paul's flow of thought is interrupted as he takes a little caveat over here and he, he drills down a little bit with something that he wants to make sure we understand and he doesn't pick it up again until several verses later. But I think we can break it down into three sections to help us to approach it and think about it. In verses 12 through 14, Paul speaks about the entrance of sin and death into the human race. How did sin and death come to the world? Why is there death? Why do people die? Paul tells us in these verses. It has come through our first father, Adam. He begins a comparison in verse 12 between Adam and Christ. Do you see the way he puts it? Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Whenever you use that language, just as, you expect there to be a follow-up. Just as what? You know, just as this, that. Well, Paul doesn't finish his thought immediately until he brings it back in verse 18. In verse 18, he completes the thought by restating it. In verse 12, he breaks off his sentence in order to explain the pattern of sin and the pattern of death in verses 13 and 14. And the point he makes in those two verses is that there is a real difference between the people who lived before the Ten Commandments were given and the people who lived after the Ten Commandments were given. Those who lived from the time of Adam to Moses and those who lived after Moses received God's law on Mount Sinai. There's a difference. But that difference does not mean that those who lived before Mount Sinai were without sin or in some way not responsible for their sin. That's the point he makes to set up the rest of his argument in this section. In verses 15 through 19, Paul contrasts the life and work of Christ with the life and work of Adam. And he does it by highlighting Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. Adam's disobedience resulted in condemnation that led to death. But Christ's obedience has brought about justification leading to life. And so in verse 19, he, he summarizes this point. It's a great verse to help us to understand the main thrust of this part of his argument. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's Adam, and you and me. He goes on to say, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Those, are who, are, those who are in Jesus. In verses 20 and 21, Paul then summarizes the role of the law in history and the purpose of the law in helping us to see the seriousness of sin and to magnify the grace of God that saves us from sin. The point of his argument in this passage is that every person, everybody you know, everybody in this room, is either dead in Adam or alive in in Christ. You're either united to Adam and suffering the consequences of sin that he committed and that you commit under condemnation on the way to eternal death, or you are united to Christ and receiving all of the blessings and the forgiveness and justification and assurances that have come by his obedience. I like what the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said about this. He wrote, in God's sight, there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ. 
And these two men have all other men hanging on their belts. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Adam was made the head of the human race. As our representative, he disobeyed God, plunging not only himself into sin, but the whole human race into sin. And everyone who comes into this world naturally, everybody who is born, is born in Adam. Jesus Christ was made the head of a new humanity. As our representative, he obeyed God by his life and death, thereby securing salvation for his people. And everyone who is born again and turns from sin to trust in Christ is in union with him. We teach our children in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And that's true. But it is equally true that in Jesus Christ, we have life. And those are the only two options. You're either in Adam and accountable before God for your sin, you're under condemnation. Or you're in Christ and he's accountable for your sin. And he's dealt with it once and for all by his death on the cross. There is no other way. Everyone is born in Adam. We come into the world as his offspring under condemnation for our sin. And it is only by God's grace that we are rescued from that condition. When the good news of salvation is proclaimed to us, the way of God saving sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. And we believe that. And we are united by that faith in Christ. The grace that God employs to save sinners comes through the good news of what he's done for sinners. It is only Christ that gives life. So John Don was right. No man is an island entirely to itself. Everyone is in solidarity with other people. And you came through the doors this morning in solidarity either with Adam under condemnation or in solidarity with Christ, forgiven, reconciled, justified in God's courtroom. To be in Adam is to face the prospect of having to pay for your sin eternally. To be in Christ is to have the assurance that your sin has been separated from you as far as the east is from the west because he has dealt with your sin. So you may have come through the doors this morning in Adam. My prayer is that you will leave through the doors this morning in Christ. Christ is yours if you will have him. Trust him. Believe him. Bow to Him as Lord. And you will find by God's grace that He forgives your sin, He reconciles you to Himself, and He will save you forever. Let's pray together.